If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. Hello and welcome to A Life in Dublin. I'm your host Mark and with your permission we'd love this podcast to be your digital companion for the next little bit at least. Today's episode is a little bit different, is a conversation about a man whose impact on the world will be spoken about probably for generations to come. Let's start with the image of a man who basically vanished off the face of the earth for a number of years before he finally reappeared walking across the border from China to Vietnam with no possessions and essentially no identity. This man went on to garner a huge following and fought a revolution in his country that had repercussions internationally. The man I speak of is Ho Chi Minh. My friend Nia, a Vietnamese stand-up comic living in Dublin, spoke to me about the life and character of the person who had a number of different names in his life but became known as Ho Chi Minh, the Enlightened One. We avoid talking too deeply about politics in this conversation as I was more interested in learning about the type of person who could achieve such things in his life. I really hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as as much as I enjoyed having it. If you'd like to help support this podcast, you could share it with a friend or leave a rating or review. By doing so, we get to reach new listeners and continue to grow this really warm and supportive community. Thank you so much to everyone who's already done so. Your support really does mean the world. And now, here's my conversation with Nia. Makes you thirsty, put it that way. Not the the most healthy meal either. Um, I will will point that out. Um, And just for... I think we have to address a little bit of an elephant in the room here, yeah. which is it's it's weird not to draw attention to this, but people who are listening obviously won't see this. But I normally have a tripod which I use uh, yeah, with yeah. my phone to like get a, a little clip for for social media of the conversations that we have. But I forgot my tripod today, 
and instead of a tripod I have a stool in the middle of the table so I'm looking through the legs of a stool at you while I'm having this conversation um, so it's a little bit weird yeah, <laughs> but I know, yeah, yeah. we yes. can make this work basically the stool is propping up my phone uh, in order to get a, a, a clip for for this incredibly amateur um, nature of it but it, it'll be a, a wonderful conversation anyway it's um, right, yeah. and <laughs> I hope so um, and just for a little bit of a point of reference I guess on why we're having this conversation in the first place um, we obviously have known each other for a while now and um, we got to know each other through you know I, I can't even remember exactly now but obviously you're um, a comedian and I, we've gotten to know each other through those kind of circles of comedians and performances and things like that anyway we were at an event one day and we were having a, a beer together and for whatever reason um, I don't know exactly how we got onto the topic we started talking about Ho Chi Minh and I have to admit my ignorance here um, I can be as, as curious as I am ignorant sometimes um, so like Please, uh, not that I don't take offence to this, but uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I obviously don't speak like Vietnamese or, or anything like that. So for me, Ho, I knew Ho Chi Minh was a place, but I never knew it was a, a person. Um, and then you started explaining to me about this person and the life that they had and obviously how important they were to Vietnam. Um, and I didn't know any of that before. And I was absolutely fascinated by the life story um, of this guy. Jesus, it was incredible. Like how one person lived such a life. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Um, so I decided to have a little chat to you today about, about him and about his life and what you can tell me more about him. Obviously, you're from Vietnam. You've grow, grown up with the, the history of this guy as a national hero. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure there's, it's it's obviously a complicated uh, story a little bit. Um, so thank you anyway, first of all, for, for agreeing to, to chat to me about him. Where would you start if you were talking about his life? Um, what, were, what are the first things that you learn in school, for example, about this guy? Uh, so uh, as I mentioned, you said... Uh because your because your first knowledge of Ho Chi Minh was that it was a place. Yeah, uh, it is a place because so and I grew up in that place uh, mm. and that place is called um, uh, Ho Chi Minh City, which is the the largest city in Vietnam, the eco economic center uh, of Vietnam. It was formerly called Saigon um, uh, during the uh, under the French and afterwards under the uh, during the American War uh, during in the sixties and seventies. Yeah. And when the war ended in '75, the uh, the winning side uh, named the uh, renamed the Saigon after Ho Chi Minh, and thus it was called. That is now called Ho Chi Minh City. Um, yeah. So, um, like, so in, in Vietnam, he's uh, basically omnipresent. Uh, he's everywhere. Like, if you travel to anywhere part of the country, he'll be on. There'll be statues of him, post uh, posters. Um, even in school, where. He, in school, so the thing is, in every Vietnamese classroom, there will be a portrait of Ho Chi Minh hanging above the uh, the blackboard, mm. and then there will be another, like a like a pla like a placard, uh, like a posters, and that poster would list out what was called uh, what was called the uh, the five teachings of Uncle Ho. So in wow. Vietnam, it's probably known as uh, Uncle Ho. As a, mm. 
to give it like a more familiar sense uh, the five teachings would be like uh, uh, just basic morality and uh, you know it's just uh, how to be a good person like for example like how to be a good citizen love your countrymen have good hygiene uh, maintain a good work ethic etc okay um, um, so you know for for us here in Ireland we would have learned the we're taught the yeah, obviously times have changed whatever uh, but you know maybe in the past it would have been the Ten Commandments yeah. it would have been perhaps that our, our moral guide um, were those five teachings of Ho Chi Minh um, so you're, you're educating me on every level here were in place of some kind of religion I think you said to me before that Vietnam is mostly Buddhist if I'm correct uh, see well uh, technically it's a secular country it's just that we have different uh, religious groups um, the biggest the biggest religion is obviously uh, Buddhism we also have significant Catholic minorities Protestants uh, Protestants um, yeah and we also have Muslims as well so okay. but, but the thing is that uh, it's officially a secular country secular countries and obviously, uh, so education is secular. Okay. Um, at the same time, you know, because there's also a single party communist, uh, a single party communist state, and you know, you think about it, communism is, is sort of like a secular religion. Yeah. And uh, and the thing is, uh, and there's uh, sort of a cult surrounding Ho Chi Minh. Yeah. Um, that was uh, in place, uh, uh, particularly uh, prominently, particularly after his death, um, across the, the the whole country. Um, so and the thing is that you know, like even like in traditional Vietnamese education, um, so the thing is that in a Vietnamese classroom, so you have portrait of Ho Chi Minh, the five teaching of uh, of Uncle Ho, but also yeah, there's also this like uh, Confucian quote that uh, basically says uh, you must learn uh, courtesy before you learn knowledge. Okay. So, so this element of like Confucian is because Vietnam, you have like a mixture of religion, but also it's also a uh, the uh, there's an element of Confucianism as well in uh, Vietnamese. What, what do you mean by courtesy? Courtesies, well, vir- courtesy mm-hmm. or virtues. Uh, uh-huh. uh, sort of like uh, be a, learn like man- manners, how to talk, um, learn manners, learn how to talk to one another. Uh, how to behave. How to behave before yeah. you become, uh, before you uh, acquire knowledge. That makes sense to me. We could do a little bit of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you have a bit of that. So it's not necessary like to replace religion anyway, because education uh, has always been, uh, in Vietnam at any point in time, has always been sort of uh, secular. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, like, obviously because like the, the cult of Ho Chi Minh is uh, essentially omnipresent in a way, and because he uh, is a way to like to uphold legitimacy of the, of the, of the current government system. Okay, um, so I think Ho Chi Minh died in the ni- in nineteen sixty nine, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Um, but still, to this day, in the classroom, you have the picture of Ho Chi Minh, and also the, as you say, the political party, the governing party, still use him as a like a brand. Essentially, yeah, like a like a franchise almost. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, because. Um, yeah, even like people, you, you would have like prominent politician every, every now and then, but often those prominent politicians will be branded as uh, like obsessional students of uh, Ho Chi Minh. 
yeah. usually. So it's him, it's them upholding his legacy. Yeah. And also particularly like after in the 90s when uh, Vietnam embarked on uh, economic, like market economic uh, reforms, so they had to slightly abandon Marxism, Leninism, and in, 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 uh, in, in, in that place they would have uh, the greatest thing called the dots of Ho Chi Minh. Okay. So it's all like a, a collection of all of his like um, writings and uh, quotes on like on different aspects of society and whatnot as a way to like to replace like Marxism Leninism, which was which was going out the window uh, after the end of the Cold War. Um, even though when he was alive, Ho Chi Minh was never really a, a theoretician. You know, he was never an ideologue. He was. Even though he was a uh, he he he, uh, he was very commi- he was ideologically committed to. Marxism and Leninism, but more as a tool to transform society. Yeah, so like we're we're kind of come to all, all that, I guess. Um, you you grew up obviously, I imagine, admiring this guy a lot because if you're educated in that way and you're like, oh, Uncle Ho is such a nice guy, and he teaches us these amazing values, and you know he fought for nationalism, he unified our country, etc. Um, I imagine you admire him a lot. Um, perhaps the same way that we might admire. You know, Michael Collins, James Connolly, mm-hmm. Boric Pierce, all of these people in yeah. Ireland. Um, I, I'd, I'd love to try and kind of break all of that down and get to understand. Because we can admire people to the point where they don't seem real. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, like those characters of Connolly, Collins, they almost don't seem real. They seem like these fearless people who had, you know, from the moment they were born, this this meaning in life and but the reality is probably very uh different and i'm sure they had doubts and they had fears and anxieties they had moments of what the hell am i doing here is this the right thing you know etc um but we obviously project onto them uh through you know stories being told etc i mean and they obviously are brilliant people don't get me wrong but i want to try and get to know like if we can today like the person of ho chi minh versus the idol of Ho Chi Minh. Um, as far as I'm aware, he was born in quite a rural part of yeah. uh, uh, northern Vietnam. Well, northern central Vietnam. Like, funny to see the thing about that re- particular region of Vietnam, uh, like to uh, compare to Ireland, is sort of like the uh, the Cork Limerick Kerry version okay. uh, of, of Vietnam, where people would have to speak with a very funny accent. Okay. Uh, the land is. It's pretty rough. They, they they tend to get together. Um, they tend to. There's a there's a spirit of rebellion within uh, within them. Um, at the same time, like uh, because the the land is quite rough, so obviously they they uh, they, uh, they have to be very frugal mm. as well. And education was seen as a way to for for them to achieve some sort of like social mobility. Okay. Um, yes, and so the, the the part that he he came from was called Ngang, Ngang, and then Ngang. So so Ngang is sort of like the cork. And then you have like another adjacent province called uh, Tanhua, and another one's called Hatton. So those three combines as the the three the, the three uh, northern central province regions of Vietnam called Tanhetan. So like Cork, Limerick, and and Kerry. Okay. So in one in one basket, and they all share similar characteristics. Okay. In a way. You you you're obviously how far is that from the current day Ho Chi Minh? Uh, so um, it's like. Uh, Around two hour for flight. Okay, uh, well, it's quite a distance then. It's a yeah, it's a, it's a fair bit. It's like the country. You look at the shape of Vietnam. It's, it's a very long country. Yeah. You, you have two thick ends, uh, uh, either either in the northern and south, and yeah. then you have like a really long thin body in the middle. 
So Ho Chi Minh will be from that ten part of uh, that ten strip of Vietnam. Also part of my fam, also my family also came from that ten strip. Just okay. a bit further down south. Okay. But the but that tends to be called Central Vietnam. Okay. Um. So growing up there, what what type of life do you think he had as a young person? Um. So um. Uh, 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 if you uh, so from my understanding, so basically his his father was a sort of a mid level uh, bureaucrat. So he so in the old days, uh, the way you become a civil servant uh, is that you have to go through a series of rigorous examination, yeah. and those examination will be based on like the uh, Confucian classics, and then also a bit of Vietnamese history and literature, and uh, maybe some uh, sometimes they have like mathematics as well, and but those exams can be quite quite tough, um, like. It's not like you just, it's not like these days you you know you, you remember when you do your like leaving search. You know, it's not like you you just carry a pen. You go to a, a <laughs> gymnasium. No, this guy they had to like carry like all of that stuff. But then like because the exam hall will be held outdoor, and you have to bring your own tent, sit in the tent with your own with your table, and then you'll be like invigilators watching you from above, and uh, and it, and those exam will be only held like every three years. Hang on a second. Uh... They're outside. You you have a tent. Yeah, in a tent. Everyone sits in the individual tent. In their individual tent. Yeah. Um. I sorry. What is like because it takes so long to do the exam, um, or because you need to be blocked from the sun. Um. Uh, it's uh, um just a way to like uh, take a like a just a way to control just to to watch out watch for. It's a way to like control people uh, in a way. Um. It's a. It's not. Um. Like I think it's a way to uh, prevent. Uh, bias of, of any sort, um, or cheating, or cheating in a way, um, and, those, and uh, if you caught cheating, <laughs> oh you get you, you receive some very harsh punishment as well. Like, and also the fact that even like um, on the exams, uh, if, because uh, in uh, in the old Vietnam, we would use like uh, Chinese-based characters to uh, transcribe to to write down stuff, and uh, and the thing is, you have to be very careful about what kind of characters you use. So if you use like a character that some have some sort of subtle reference to maybe the the emperor, or anything to do with the emperor, like maybe one of his like uh, his uh, his uh, his parents or one of his pa- or his one of his palaces. Okay. Just any sort of just any character so sort of has anything to do with that, you might be f- f- you might be caught for treason. Wow. Yeah. So it's uh, it's very uh, so it's, it's tough and it takes a lifetime as well. Uh, and if you pass one of the exam, uh, one of the because there's like different levels in the exams. There's the local level, the provincial level, and then there's the uh, national level. At the national level, you you get to uh, sometimes sometimes the exam questions are set by the emperor himself. Wow. Um, yeah. So and then you if you pass one of the exams, you might be given like a a, a a position within the imperial bureaucracy at any levels. Okay. Um, yeah, so Ho Chi Minh's father went through that process, and um, it became like a so so like a mid-level uh, bureaucrat, and uh, he would be given like some sort of like a stipend by the imperial court. Like it's not it's pretty mild. it's not generous. It's pretty modest, and because they expected to live uh, because according to Confucian principle, they expected to live a more transparent uh, life. Um, but yeah, no, and then obviously he was away a lot because he would be spending a lot of time working in the imperial capital, which was Hue at the time in central Vietnam um, but um, but you yeah, know like when uh, imagine when he was little because he grew Ho Chi Minh grew up was born in a very pivotal, pivotal time in Vietnamese history it was when because basically that was he was born when basically the French was uh, was already like uh, setting up shop 
in uh, in Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, obviously Vietnam became a colony of of France. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't just Vietnam though. It was, it was kind of. It was so the French took over. Uh, yeah, so uh, like in 80, 80, 1887, they established the Indo-Chinese uh, uh, Union, which was composed of uh, modern-day Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Yeah, uh, and that was like the result of like thirty years of like fighting, just, just trying to take over the whole place. And even like that at the time, like uh, Vietnam was not. Uh, Vietnam was also like divided into three separate regions. And, it, and each region would have their own like, administration, okay. administrative system. So the the southern part of Vietnam, which was which the French called Cochin Cochin China, that was the that was an official French colony, a fully fledged French colony where French laws would apply, and uh, any subjects that could, could apply to become a French citizens. And then you have uh, the central part, which was called Annam. Uh, technically, uh, technically, it was under the uh, jurisdiction of the imperial court, but with French protection. And then the northern part, which was called Tonkin, and that was the uh, uh, that was uh, considered a French uh, protectorate. Okay. So you have like so. Uh, what is a French protectorate? So essentially, it's placed under the the political region is placed under the protection of, of France, and France would represent that region interest in like in the, at the international level. Okay. Um. So he was born at this time where I think the French were there basically for rubber, maybe. You know, they they were taking like uh, resources from this region. Yeah, pretty much like any uh, European uh, yeah, uh, yeah, powers exactly. in that region at the at the time. Just to, that was uh, the the popular business model at the time. A bit more of your time, also like because Vietnam was in, uh, uh, a neighbor to China to the north, and China is considered was considered a very lucrative market because even like European powers was carving up China at the time, and they need like a an as uh, an access to the China Chinese market. Yeah. Um. Ho Chi Minh wasn't born as Ho Chi Minh. Uh, so uh, I think, as far as I'm aware, this probably all sounds because you can speak it, but Ho Chi Minh means like the enlightened one or the one who brings light or something like that. Yeah, sort of. Uh, that's the, sort of the, the literal translation. Uh, so Ho is, like, is a typical Sino-Vietnamese uh, surname and then Jim and... Yeah, sort of like it, it kind of means uh, the, the bring, uh, the, the light, uh, sort of enlightenment. Mm. In general, so the bringer of light. Um, that was his moniker, one of his uh, most uh, popular monikers. Um, because even Ho Chi Minh, throughout his entire life, he ha- he would use uh, like hundreds of different like uh, aliases, pseudonyms, and whatnot. Uh, yeah, so he changed his name many times, and we'll come to that. But he had a father there, as we know now, who worked in um, or for the government um, yeah. at the time, which would have been a colonial government. Yeah. Um, so. You know, I would have thought that he grew up with what was what was his name at birth? Do you know? Um, you mean Ho Chi Minh? Yeah. Uh, Ho Chi Minh. So his uh, birth name was uh, Nguyen Sin Kung. So uh, so his family surname was Nguyen, which is a very is a very popular surname in in Vietnam, and it happened to be the uh, the name of the last feudal dynasty uh, in Vietnam around the time when Ho Chi Minh was born. So wings and gum, but the thing is in Confucian tradition. So when you're born, you're given you you would have like a, what was called an infant name, like a milk name. Mm. And eventually, when you grow when you grow up to be to adolescence, you will be given was what was called a courtesy name. So that name you'll be used for like uh, uh, external contacts with the wider society. So uh, so he was born wings and gum, and then his father gave him uh, the name Duck Tan. Uh, so he would be known. He was known as Nguyen Tất Thành. So Nguyen Tất Thành, uh, Tất Thành means uh, one who would succeed. 
Oh, there you go. So it was uh, so some so all the names will have like meanings to them. Like they're, they're often to uh, often uh, uh, often like so sort of based on sort of like uh, what your parents would uh, would hope for, like some sort of like your, your parents' aspiration of you. Yeah. What does your What does your name mean? So my full uh, government's name is uh, Mai Phuc Trọng Nghĩa. So Mai is my uh, surname. M A I is my surname. Phuc would be my middle name. Trọng Nghĩa would be my full uh, given name. Trọng mm-hmm. Nghĩa. It literally means uh, to emphasize uh, righteousness. Oh wow! No pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah. So it's um, yeah. So it's all like your parental aspiration. And also in Ho Chi Minh's time, uh, the Ho Chi Minh's time, the names will be come will come from like especially you come from a family of Confucian scholars. Your name will be come from like one of the Confucian will be will be sourced from like a, a quote from a Confucian classic somewhere. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's it's amazing how important like Confucius Confucian philosophy. I didn't realize. I mean, obviously, I know I've heard of Confucius. I've never really read into much about his philosophies or anything like that. But it's it's incredible how how much of a staple just from re- like learning a little bit about Ho Chi Minh over the past couple of days. How um, important or how much of a staple of the education in Vietnam. Uh, I don't know about now, but in the past. Uh, Confucian philosophy was yeah it was uh, it was dogma in Vietnamese society it dictated uh, basically Vietnamese society for more or less 800 years wow uh, well at the same time you know you also had elements of Taoism and, and Buddhism also uh, play a major role as well so those three would combine as the the three beliefs mm. uh, so there would be like the foundation the ideological the uh, ideological foundation of East Asian society mm. in general like in China Vietnam Korea and a little bit in Japan um, is is Confucian philosophy still to this day taught in in schools? Uh, not as much anymore, um, but elements of it still survive. It is because it's so deeply rooted in uh, Vietnamese society. So a lot of the things they do were were you could say they were kind of sort of Confucian, but not not really. Like they were just very just some really basic values, things like uh, filial piety, like being courteous, to, being respectful towards your parents, your your elders. Yeah, um, or like perspective towards your so essentially like interpersonal relationship things to, to do with interpersonal relationship or even like cultivation of 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 of, of yourself of, of the self like how to become a better human being. Yeah, but I feel like we're kind of missing that these days in general. We we learn a lot of rational and logical stuff, but yeah, how to actually be. Um, we all like I think come out of school and go, what the hell do I do with myself now? Yeah. Um. Anyway, that's a conversation for another day. Yeah. Um. He would have had this father. He respected very much, I imagine. Um, how did he go from, you know, growing up in in this northern part of Vietnam, which, as you say, is, you know, the very strong-minded people, strong-willed people. They believed in education. Um, he had a a relatively successful father. Like I imagine, they weren't stuck for. They weren't peasants. Yeah. You know. Um, how did he transition? from this kid to um, forming a rebellion. Uh, yeah, so uh, there will be a sort of a 
30 year long uh, story. That will be a 30 year long story. Like a 30 even is it's basically like a mini series. You think about yeah. it, like one of the big streaming giants could pick it up. You know, um, yeah. So basically, what happened was so um, in terms of his own family, he his family suffered like a bit of tragedy themselves because his mom passed away when he was quite little, like when he was 10. Mm. He lost a, a younger brother when he uh, when a young uh, a very young uh, at a very young age as well. Mm, I didn't know that. Yeah, yes. Um and then his father was away most of the time, so he so he would rely on like his siblings and then like the neighbor just the the the, the local villagers, mm. his neighbors uh, in, in general. Um so and at the same time because so his father uh, worked for the like imperial bureaucracy and you know it was for him, you know, it was not that glamorous even though it was uh, it was not that glamorous because it was a uh, the, the fact that uh, his gov- his own government had just submitted themselves to the uh, essentially the invading force. Mm. And so there's there's no like there's no pride in that. This is a great. Yeah. It's a, so it would feel like a great deal of shame. Mm. Um, and so to the point that he was sometimes he he would he uh, he was not willing to collaborate 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 with the French, even like not willing to learn French himself. But at the same time, he had faith in his own son. So because uh, because he represented his son represented the the next generation. Yeah. So they'd be more well suited to like uh, acquire a more modern education. So obviously, um, at a young age, he would start learning. Ho Chi Minh would start learning uh, like the Chinese, the, the Confucian classics. Like started writing and like car- start learning calligraphy, like in the, the, the classical Chinese characters. But eventually, his father decided to send him to so like a prep school, um, in like the like the, the in the big uh, in in the bigger cities, like where they would learn like French and, and Western sci- uh, European sciences, like things mm-hmm. like logic and reasoning and. And one uh, critical thinking, um, so that they be more well adapted to the to to all the changes that was happening around them. That in like that in itself is is amazing because I, I often thought of like these days, you know, just the way the world is constructed, right? If you obviously you can speak English, um, and maybe if you could speak Mandarin or you know an Asian language, you your understanding of cultures. Because when you learn a language, you know this, and anybody who's learned a language knows this, you also have to learn a culture. Because you have to understand how to say something and the yeah. way it should be said, exactly, yeah. etc. So back then, to think that you had a guy who, you know, was learning um, Chinese, he was learning French, um, I know that ultimately he spoke English as well. Yeah. So for a man, like he was born, I think, in 1890 or something like yes, that. Uh, yeah, that's um, from uh, bird year. Yeah, around then so by the you know by 1910 you have a guy who can speak these three different languages uh, well by the way it's it's commented that he could speak them maybe not like a native but he spoke them very and wrote very very well yeah um, I think a big part of this guy's success the successful one is down to how well educated he was he's obviously intelligent because he was able to yeah. integrate all of that education into his mind Um. And then you have this this description of him. There is some footage of him, but you know, it's not great quality, obviously. Um, but this, you have the description of this guy. I think he was four foot eleven. He was a very small man. Yeah. Um, and um, incredibly skinny. Yeah. Like people who described him as like, you know, death warmed up a little bit. That he he looked like he could fall over at any moment. Yeah. He was that uh, gaunt and, but he had these like, piercing eyes yeah. that when his eyes looked at you um, there was 
there was something there yeah. like whether it was charisma a spirit a, uh, a vision a vision exactly yeah but it, it his eyes demanded respect yeah that's one thing that even when you can see that even when there's like pictures of him on the internet you look into his eyes and you're like Oof, if this guy looked at me yeah for whatever reason you're gonna stop and yeah and maybe just stop <laughs> yeah um, I think also like in terms of his uh, linguistic ability uh, when, around 1910 so in terms of like the Chinese one because like he learned the characters but he would read them in a Vietnamese tone mm. whereas like he would later on learning like actual spoken Chinese like Mandarin and other Cantonese one when he was like working in uh, in China as a revolutionary yeah well and his French level was decent it was not fluent it was it was enough for him like because he, he got expelled from school around like yeah, he was around 18 years old Apparently, because he took part in a like a it was, there was a sort of like an anti-tax revolt in central Vietnam, and he helped like with like uh, with the peasants, like helping to translate one of the petitions into French, to so that they can send it, submit it to the uh, French officials. Um, but yeah, it was, it was very sorry to interrupt, but he so he basically he translated uh, what was you know a plea to the French government to come yeah. on, like this. This yeah. rights, the situation that we have is horrific. This must change. So basically, his translation of that from uh, Chinese to well, actually, it was uh, it was written in uh, Vietnamese. Vietnamese. Sorry. So because um, uh, the sort of way work, the character system works so was that you have classical Chinese, but also you have like a set of characters to represent spoken uh, vernacular Vietnamese, and then uh, and then you have this uh, Romanized. Vietnamese as well, like uh, like Vietnamese, but written in a Latin in a like oh, Latin really? Latin alphabet, and that's like the the, the official writing script of Vietnam uh, at a, to uh, today. Oh. Um, and at that time, so he would learn. No, so at at a village uh, in his village, he would learn like classical Chinese. But obviously, also when he went to school, he also had to learn the new alphabet as well. Yeah, and uh, and that new alphabet was also advocated by uh, by the Vietnamese at least as like a medium towards like modernization. Mm. And also to kind of ex- to get away from the uh, like Chinese cultural influence and to form a more authentic Vietnamese uh, identity. Okay. So he will learn all of that. So he learn how to read. Uh, read. He was still he still know how to write in like classical Chinese, but he was still he he's able to write in like the modern Vietnamese alphabet. And he also he spoke uh, French, um, uh, French, and um, yeah. So and then um, so that's uh, that's basically. But I wonder. It basically my 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 what I'm thinking here is I wonder if he if he ended up translating that document because he also you know he's eighteen years old at this point, if he also believed in what he was translating or if he was kind of simply just helping a group of people out being a what he thought was a stand up uh, member of society, these are a group of people that need my help I'm an educated yeah. guy yeah. how he actually came into really um, around that group of people, I don't know. I think well because like, his father was already uh, they because his father were friends with like some of the most prominent Vietnamese uh, like some of the early Vietnamese nationalists at the time. Uh, so okay. one there's one person who's like uh, uh, who's called Fan Bo Yao. He's he's from the same region as uh, Ho Chi Minh, and he's considered one like a like a figure like a like a very well respected figure 
and one of the first person to articulate modern Vietnamese nationalism. Mm. And at the same time, there was like a serious revolt against the French that was happening like in the late 18th, like late 19th century, early 20th century. So mm. Ho Chi Minh would learn from that, and obviously his father would teach him about uh, Vietnam's glory history, of resisting against the foreign invaders, particularly like uh, you know the Chinese, the Imperial Chinese or the Mongols. Yeah, and learn about all these national heroes. So he always had like idols, role models to look up to, mm. and also at the same time. Uh, because his father wanted him to have a, a modern education in, in, uh, based on the fact that he thought, uh, his father thought that he, they were able to use uh, what they learned about the French and, and use that knowledge against the French. Ah, okay. Um, but yeah, I, I guess like... I didn't realize that because in, in, the, in the documentary that I watched about him, uh, it doesn't really meant, it doesn't talk much about his father. And, and yeah. I didn't realize that this uh, rebellion perhaps was kind of not orchestrated but perhaps a seed a small seed was planted by his father yeah i thought that this this whole thing came from him but um, obviously he was he was influenced in some way by his father yeah i guess he he inherits a certain uh, i think because he, he was very close to his father anyway yeah. um, simply because you know his mom passed away when it was like when he was young yeah and his father was the only was the only parental figure uh, in his life in addition to that but uh, also in, uh, in addition to that his siblings were also quite active uh, in the sort of the, the anti-colonial rebellion okay uh, as well um, but yeah so like it's, it's uh, there's sort of there was already sort of so uh, sort of a family tradition um, like uh, to like agitate uh, against the uh, uh, the French colonial system okay well, that makes more sense to me uh, so for this act, he ended up getting expelled from school. Yeah, um, he was eighteen at the time, so it must have been almost. He must have been almost finished anyway. Kind of, uh, yeah, sort of, yeah. Um, like because, uh, yeah, I think because he studied like the French. He was, uh, he they did like sort of like a modified version of the the French uh, high school system. Yeah, uh, at the time, yeah, I think he. I don't know much because it's it's still very blurry. Like when it was uh, where what stage was he at? In his education, mm. but obviously he has some sort of fundamental, some sort of rudimentary understanding of like French, the French language, French cultures, French history, mm. and even like the, the sciences uh, uh, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, also at the same time, his father was uh, basically disgraced uh, because uh, uh, like he he also exposed uh, 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 expelled from his position as a bureaucrat. For the same act of the translation of this document, no, but for different, different? Uh, for a different reason, because his father was known for uh, like essentially supporting like uh, uh, the, the essentially the, the lowest level of society, and he was very anti landlords and anti feudal landlords, and uh, eventually that uh, that caught the attention of uh, of his employ of his uh, of his superiors, but also the French administration. So they they request that he. That he should be expelled from the bureaucracy, okay, and then he eventually uh, went to uh, he moved down south, uh, moved to southern Vietnam, like coaching China, which was a French colony at the time. He worked as a teacher, a medicine man, and I think also so Ho Chi Minh at the time followed his father down south as well, where he became a teacher in a in a private school mm. established by uh, a very liberal minded Vietnamese uh, businessmen and uh, politicians. Yeah. Um, so this will will we call it hatred or uh, 
um, this angst that he had against France and, and these colonial powers, etc. As an 18-year-old now, he's seen as he's been screwed over. He's been thrown out of school. Yeah. Uh, his dad has lost his, his job because of the beliefs. You know, obviously, they have this kind of rebellious spirit. As an 18-year-old guy, um, you know, perhaps in other moments, in other countries, in other people, violence might have come to mind. And we do know that there was like this kind of dual personality to Ho Chi Minh that as you said earlier on you had this uh, Uncle Uncle Ho is this kind of yeah. picture of this like really nice sweet man who was like so nice to all the kids and here yeah. listen I'll come you know listen, come sit under a tree and listen to me read you a story kind yeah, of thing yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, on the other side there was people who say that he was a real hard uh mm, very strong-minded yeah whatever the adjective you want to think of person right intense intense very very intense but he didn't at this point violence was not part of um he didn't resort to violence basically it was it seemed to be more calculated as far as i'm aware he wanted to get experience of france uh, interestingly it's like in, into the belly of the beast, almost. Sort of, yeah. Because he had uh, he had some he had experience of like uh, particularly from his teachers. He had some decent enough uh, French teachers, who uh, like who was essentially nice to him and they recognized his talent. And also he had uh, people who told him about how uh, who taught him about like the the values of the French uh, republics. You know, the French republican values uh, like the liberty, fraternity, equality. But the irony is that those values was not practiced within coloni- uh, colonized Vietnam mm. uh, at the time. Um, yeah, so like, so um, he he taught at the the private school for like more or less two years, and around yeah, nineteen eleven. And this in in Vietnam, this is known as the the period when he started his like journey of national salvation. Okay, so that's what that's the official term in uh, in Vietnam. That's when he basically uh, went on a, a random French ship and asked to join the, the staff. Uh, and become like a, a kitchen uh, a kitchen helper yeah so like a big cruise ship that yeah. was like traveling all around the world yeah um and as far as i'm aware yes he said he became a chef or something uh, well when, not even chef. he was just like a the kitchen boy really like he was just you know he was just like scrubbing the floor cutting up the potatoes uh, you know washing the dishes uh whatnot it's just like the, the lowest of a, basically the lowest of low um he got paid way less you know like he was basically working a minimum wage job yeah but he was there with a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. His, he wasn't there to, you know, he, he was there to get to France. And as you say, experience that. I think that's amazing that he had this, uh, although um, he had uh, obviously um, a hatred for it in, in certain ways in the country, but he also had a respect for or a, an interest in yeah. how they do things. And hang on a second, you're treating us unfairly. We're getting like treated like crap over here, but... Let's have a look to see how you guys do it, and yeah. maybe maybe we can bring this back and set this up here, or like at least maybe his idea at the time was initiate a conversation with the French, going, "Look, I've been there. I see how you run things. We want things yeah. the same. We want equal rights uh, in in Vietnam." So maybe this was his thinking at the time. But interesting that he gets on the ship. It was his only way of getting there. Yeah, um, you know, probably. What is it, washing potatoes or whatever it was, um, and eventually he gets to France. But I was in the documentary that I watched, 
it does mention that they this ship, as I said, takes him first all over the world. Yeah. Africa, India. Yeah. Um, and he starts seeing the effects of colonial colonialism in other countries. Yeah. So it's his first impression of seeing, you know, colonialism, um, not only in Vietnam, but he's like, okay, uh, now the, the the Brits, the yeah. the Dutch, whatever it is, it doesn't seem like this works anywhere. Yeah. Um, so just, I think that's an interesting experience that he had. Yeah, even like um, also on his journey, he stopped by America as well. Like uh, he uh, he stopped over in uh, parts of like uh, Harlem, New York, or uh, Boston, mm. based on official based on his biographies and other. Rec- on on the records, even though there's no official records about about uh, this period in his life, so it's still kind of blurry. Um, but yeah, he has he was known to have stopped in America, but also part of uh, in 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 the UK. Yeah, um, I remember uh, there was something that I remember from the documentary, and it was like he noticed that when he got to America, that you know not everybody was equal or whatever. Yeah. Like you have the aristocrats and then you had people living in slums. Yeah. Um, and he noticed that, you know, a lot of these people living in slums were, were white people, were probably Irish and Italian or whatever they yeah, were. Yeah. Um, but he said, at least they still had a right to vote. Yeah. Um, that was one power that they had yeah. that people in, in Vietnam or didn't have at the time or, or that wasn't instated yeah it was, there was no popular voting uh, there was no universal suffrage in vietnam uh, at the time mm. um, but yeah also even like he also witnessed like uh, elements of racial relation in uh, in vietnam as well uh, because uh, because in the 20s he wrote like essays on like uh, on the plight of the african americans in mm. uh, in america when he, when he was fully committed to uh, political agitation yeah. Um, but yeah, no, like he witnessed like sort of racial uh, prejudices because he lived in because um, based on his biography, he, he was known to have lived in in Harlem. That's okay. Uh, in in New York. Uh, um, but yeah, no, he uh, so and even to this, so uh, when he became he became the the, the popular became the lead, Ho Chi Minh the leader, he would uh, often known to have commented on like racial situation in America. Mm. Um, so he he has seen uh, he he would have seen a lot of things like during it uh, during his long journey. Yeah, I just think it's incredible that a guy of that generation sees so much of the world. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe it's much more common than than I imagined. But um, anyway, he gets to France, and as you say, this is where what was it you said his his nationalist the uh, the salvation. What was it? It was so in Vietnam we 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 dubbed that uh, period of his life as a journey searching for a path of national salvation. So, okay. so searching for like a solution to yeah. the colonial problems in uh, in Vietnam. And as you say, he starts writing a lot. Um, he's writing his ideas. Where where are those ideas going? Like where is he sending them to? I, what that was one thing that wasn't very well explained to me, or yeah. I found confusing because, you know. I can write something in my in my diary, but you know, or whatever. I just don't know how how that got dispersed to so many people. Um, so um, basically, he he there was he made two trips. Uh, made uh, it was known that he made two trips to to France. Um, so he was well, when he was on the ship, he he stopped by around. He was also like nineteen twelve, thirteen or fourteen, whatever, just before the outbreak of the First World War, and then he was on the boat on the ship again throughout most of the First World War and then around 1917 he came back to France 
and uh, when he came back, he he connected with like uh, uh, not uh, like uh, prominent uh, Vietnamese ex uh, expatriates uh, that was living in France at the time, but particularly like students, uh, students, and also like for, uh, leaders uh, in the Vietnamese uh, expatriate communities. Because at the time, there was a lot of Vietnamese uh, living in France at the time, because a lot of them were employed by uh, by France to essentially work in the munition factories, growing rice for the French army. In the, and some and uh, and a lot of them also fought for 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 the French during the First World War, particularly in the Balkans. Mm. So you have like a sizable Vietnamese community at the time, and uh, he was part of this group called the uh, it's called the Five Dragons. Um, so essentially, the the five prominent members of the Vietnamese expatriate expatriate community. In, nice name. Yeah, in Vietnam, uh, in in France. Uh, so he was one of those uh, one of those people. So it was him, a guy called Nguyen Nguyen, who's like a young law student, uh, like a bright, very a, a prodigy almost. Nguyen Thế Chuyện, also a student in France. Uh, Fang Chou Chen, who's a friend of a friend of, uh, of Ho's uh, father, uh, also very prominent uh, revolutionary uh, leader, who advocated for more nonviolent form of resistance against the France uh, against the French. And then you have Nguyen Thế Chuyện, who was known to uh, who was known to be Vietnam's first uh, Western-trained lawyer. Mm. So you have, you have five uh, you have five prominent men, and uh, I want for so like around 1917, there was this thing called uh, the October Revolution that happened in in Russia, that uh, essentially uh, helped establish the first communist state yeah. uh, in in the world uh, under Lenin. And so Ho, Ho Chi Minh was captivated by that. And around, and around 1919, you had this thing called the Paris Peace Conference. That's when all like the major, the, the major victorious powers from the First World gathered uh, to essentially establish, the, uh, to negotiate peace and also to establish the, the new or post-war world order. And, uh, and it was also a good opportunity for like uh, different nationalist groups from like different places to agitate for like uh, self-government and self-determination, including the, the Irish. So uh, Ho Chi Minh was part of this group. Um, when he was part of this group, they they wrote like a petition, essentially to to be submitted to to the to the uh, to, to the peace conference, and you know, the the demands were very uh, uh, were very moderate. It was simply asking like for political reforms, universal suffrage, the right to travel, the the right for to engage in economic activity. Mm -hmm. um, so and Ho Chi Minh was one of the uh, and all then they signed it. So he didn't write it himself, but uh, obviously they all contributed. They all contributed to to the to the document. And so when you say all contributed, is this the five dragons or the five dragons? Yeah. Okay, I love that name. What a name! Sorry, yeah. go on. Uh, but then they all signed. Uh, yes, and they signed it to the document under one single name, and that was uh, the name was uh, Wing Aiko, and uh, Ho Chi Minh later ad uh, adapted that as one of his like pseudonyms. Okay, and that pseudonym like uh, it caused sort of like a, a, a wave in Vietnam because of, because suddenly you have this you imagine in Vietnam in 1919 you hear you hear suddenly uh, you, you hear about this 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 random guy who submit who who's so daring to submit like a piece of document like a petition to all the major world powers yeah just simply to ask for uh, for for it's actually serving as a, a spokesperson yeah uh, like a spokesperson for for the Vietnamese for the uh, dominated Vietnamese. Um, yes, and he, so Ho Chi Minh basically was essentially the messenger boy. He helped deliver the, the, the position. But obviously, the. Uh, the who, who was it actually delivered to? Uh, Ho Chi To essentially anybody at the time, like uh, any participating at the conference, including the leaders of the major war powers. People included uh, Woodrow Wilson of the United States, 
even like the the French uh, Prime Minister at the at the time, yeah, um, just anybody who was part of the the winning side on the at the first uh, from the First World War, yeah, and any of the like interested like nationalist groups that was uh, present at the time, yeah, um, and uh, during that time as well, he became uh, sort of like radicalized, became more interested in like left wing politics, um, yeah. as a result of, like the success of the uh, Russian Revolution. Mm. Um, he joined the uh, French Socialist Party, uh, but eventually, and and but the thing is that he also broke away. Him and many other broke away from the French Socialist Party. Well, on from Ho Chi Minh side, it was because that they were not interested in the colonial question. Um, but at one point, they broke away from the French Socialist Party to form the French Communist Party. Okay, and Ho Chi Minh was one of the founding. Oh, Wing Ai Quoc, uh, I was he was known at that time was one of the founding members. Uh huh. And when he became a, a member of the French Communist Party, he also established a this thing called the Intercolonial Union. So he was he, him and a bunch of other like uh, people from like uh, other French colonies, and they would like uh, establish newspapers, uh, several newspapers. One of them was called uh, Le Parier, the, the Parier, and they would use that uh, that newspaper as like a platform to uh, to discuss like issues in the colonies and whatnot to uh, agitate for like uh, agitate against colonial uh, colonialism so this was like their twitter account essentially yeah <laughs> the, the, the official or instagram you know, yeah. because it had like pictures and like satirical yeah uh, like you know it's uh, satirical cartoons and ho chi minh uh, uh, at the time wrote a lot of those uh, contributed a lot of articles he even edited what age was he, more or less, at this point? It was like late twenties, uh, early thirties. Mm. Uh, um, uh, pretty much like so. Yeah, so he he took essentially he took Syria uh, took uh, politics uh, politics seriously when he was around my age, like, when he was like twenty seven. But like, I studied international relations. He lived <laughs> international relations. Yeah. My God, uh, not only in in his traveling, but also his interest in different. Societies, as you said, he was looking at Russia and that revolution. Yeah. So, I think it wasn't necessarily. I don't think, in my opinion, I don't know anything, but uh, it doesn't seem to have been Leninism specifically that he was interested in. It was more the fact of the revolution, and he he was what was the vehicle that yeah. um, sparked that revolution. Yeah. Um, I think that might be. Because I think in his heart he was a nationalist. Yeah. Um and he was looking for vehicles yeah. that would drive a revolution in his country. Um we should mention, and this is the point where I pu- I throw out a wild comment like the reason Vietnam is independent or the reason Ho Chi Minh was so uh Mm, let's say had such a vision was because of Ireland um, <laughs> which is obviously a well comment but yeah, yeah. he did get to know uh, Terence McSweeney yeah. um, and for people who are listening who don't know maybe who Terence McSweeney was he was the Lord Mayor um, of uh, Cork um, back in 1916-17 uh, kind of time yeah. uh, maybe even a little bit later um, and he was also put on trial by the, the British government for sedition, yeah. um, for inciting rebellion and, and this type of thing. And he went on hunger strike, I think, in the UK, in London. Um, he was in jail for, I think he 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 lived for about 74 days yeah. while on hunger strike, but then eventually passed away. Um, and I'm trying to think exactly what Ho Chi Minh said 
Um, I don't know if you if you know, but of um, of Terence McSweeney or of Irish people in general. Well, he said something. Uh, he said uh, he said along the lineup like, uh, oh, you know, a, a people like the, like this, uh, the, the, a race of people like like this would uh, would never surrender. Essentially, mm. yeah. So he was like, praising the uh, the the recent the sort of the resistance the spirit of the Irish. Yeah, but he was okay. Whether it was the Leninism in Russia, the the spirit of the Irish people, he was formulating all of this in his head. Yeah. Um, he goes missing for a while, right? Yeah. Um, and as you said, it, nobody knew where he was. Yeah. And he used different names. Yeah. There's rumors that he had wives, but yeah. we're not really sure. Yeah. Um, and I want to skip forward to a part where I find this part fascinating, right? Yeah. He goes missing for a while. Yeah. And then, um, is it? Maybe I'm screwing this up a little bit, but there's World War Two happens. Yeah. Um, Japan invades uh, Vietnam. Yeah. Um, obviously with the support of the Nazis, etc. Yeah. And at this point, as far as it's described or I've heard, Ho Chi Minh walks across the border. Yeah. From China. Yeah. Um, into northern Vietnam. Yeah. And no, like just him. He's. It's not like he's. He's backed with. A huge following or anything he literally walks across the border yeah hands in his pockets um you know whistling a, a tune or whatever it is saying you know don't mind me guys i'm back and this is what i'm fascinated by this man is he's armed only with the knowledge and ideas that he's gained over the past however yeah. many years and his yeah. experiences yeah and he goes from absolutely nothing yeah. nobody knows who he who he was yeah and he gets the support of a country, yeah, and starts a revolution. Yeah, how in how in God's name does someone do that? Uh, yeah, I guess so. So he first uh, came back to Vietnam around uh, 1941. By that point, he had been away from Vietnam for like more or less 30 years. Because oh, during that time, because as as I mentioned, like so he was in France for the early for for the early part of 1920s. And around 1923-24, he went to Russia. He went to the Soviet Union just to see what's how the how the socialist experiment is going, the Leninist experiment is going. Oh. And he, uh, during that time, he became a member of the Communist International. He was dedicated to like uh, the activities of the uh, essentially spreading uh, communism around uh, communism and revolution around the world. Uh, he would travel like to, across like Western Europe. Bit of uh, he would go into China to organize like expatriate uh, Vietnamese. Uh, and then they would, he would send them to the military schools and and whatnot, to, essentially to help form sort of like a, a core team of people to support him mm. wherever he needs to come back to uh, to Vietnam to agitate to agitate for independence. Mm. Um, and at one point he would be like arrested in Hong Kong, and there'll be a famous trial that was covered in the British newspaper in the 1930s. He'll be in Thailand disguising as a monk, you know. But to, at the same time, also to to connect with the. Uh, the Vietnamese community in Thailand, in, in Thailand or Siam, uh, as it was known at the time. Mm. So he was, yeah, like I said, he was doing a bit of everything uh, in between that period before he came back. But obviously, yeah. So it's all, uh, uh, except for like small numbers of like uh, Vietnamese uh, activists that he helped train. No one knew who, who who he was. And when he came back in 1941, he uh, he went for a different name like, altogether. It was, uh, and this time he was known as Ho Chi Minh. 
Mm. And uh, and at the time, like so. So this is the first time people have heard of the name Ho Chi Minh. Uh, not even that. Like he was only known as Ho Chi Minh only by uh, around 1945. Okay. In 1941, he was most he was only organ- he was basically focusing on organizing the anti-Japanese resistance in the mountains in northern uh, in northern Vietnam, where they would uh, sometimes organize raids against the, the Japanese forces uh, against the Japanese, and. Um, Around 1943, 44, he he established contacts with uh, with, uh, with Americans. Uh, but essentially, there was this thing called the OSS, yeah. and that was the predecessors of the CIA. And yeah. they were like organ- they were operating in China at the time. They wanted to uh, they wanted to uh, know what was going on in uh, Vietnam or French Indochina. As uh, so, uh, he was Ho Chi Minh was reporting to the Americans about. What what was happening basically in Vietnam? Yeah, he was acting as their like agent and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But but that that started because uh, he helped rescue one of the pilots, and he went back to uh, uh, to Vietnam. Also, uh, in 1941, he helped found this thing called uh, the Viet Minh, uh, which is uh, is Vietnamese for the the League for the Vietnamese League for Independence, and that was sort of like the a coalition of the uh, nationalist groups. Like a to a coalition of like different nationalist groups within Vietnam, and they would like come together to fight against the French. But obviously, that group would be controlled by uh, by the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, it was called the Communist Party of Indochina, which Ho Chi Minh helped establish in, in 1930. Mm-hmm. But uh, everything was but uh, but Ho, and the, the even though the the core leadership would be mostly communist, but uh, uh, but the thing is, the communists would just be simply one of the many uh, groups that made up this coalition. But Ho Chi Minh will be at at his at, at the helm of it. Um, wow. But yeah, so and then they will be the one that uh, like essentially fought fought uh, that that fought against the Japanese. Forty three, forty four. He's uh, he established contacts with Americans and provide intelligence for them. At the same time, they also help uh, provide him with like aids, like training and uh, and uh, a limited amount of like weaponries. So okay, um, so this is where um, military starts to be come into his life because I'm wondering where he got his military prowess does that make sense you know yeah. he became a military leader um, um, yeah he had some basic training in China because there was this thing called a Wan Pao uh, military academy that was run by the Kuomintang that was the the, the, the the group that was controlling China at the time and they had some sort of they had some sort of association with uh, with, uh, with the Russian before the uh, before there was a anti-communist purge, so Ho Chi Minh would help. We had some training there, but also he helped to send like Vietnamese, uh, like talented Vietnamese students to, to 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 the academy. And sometimes he would send some of those students to, to Soviet Russia for further uh, training as well. Uh, uh, but, but yeah, so he would get some sort of uh, he would that, that was where he was get he would get his like military prowess. But on that, he would be acting mostly as a political leader. Because uh, during the same time, he enlisted the uh, uh, the assistance of a young law student called Wang Wingya, who also went through the training and a uh, bit of training in China. Okay. And then he, that, and uh, that person would eventually be his main military man. Uh, and you know he he became a very he became a very well known military leader as well. He's recognized as one of the uh, most prominent military leaders of, in modern history. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so like around '44, he was uh, he he was leading basically uh, the anti-Japanese resistance resistance in Vietnam uh, with American with some American help, like yeah. it was just limited amount of American uh, American help. Um, and then around 1945, there was sort of a there was a famine that happened in northern Vietnam, 
Okay. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it was, it was all, uh, happened to be in Apple mostly because, uh, yeah, the Japanese was essentially uh, stockpiling rice. They were uh, they were preventing uh, peasants from like growing rice, and so they had to grow cottons and any uh, and, uh, and uh, in the other industrial crops. Okay. Um, and also, like the French presented the prevented shipments from like the the uh, the rice from the rice growing Mekong Delta to up up north for uh, for famine assistance. And so Jeez. it was estimated that around like uh, around four hundred thousand to million uh, to to two million people died from from the famine. Wow. And that was the perfect opportunity for for, for Ho and the Viet Minh to gain popular support, where they would go into like uh, Reich's uh, storeroom and then they would destroy, they would demolish the storeroom and and they would uh, distribute rice to the uh, to the hungry peasants. Wow! And that would they, they were and they were able to gain popular support from that, um, and around and also like around August 1945, um, America dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, yeah. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And for Ho Chi Minh, that was the perfect opportunity to essentially instigate a general uprising, and that was probably known. That's not, and that's probably no popularly known in Vietnam as the August Revolution. Essentially, it was a series of spontaneous uprising uh, happening across the country. Mm. Um, and so, my grandfather also took part in, in that. It was even so. My grandfather was also uh, a communist activist himself in around mm. the 1930s up until the 40s, yeah. 1940s. So he's part of the groups that helped organize the uprisings and. Wow. In his local area, um, and eventually, forty-five. Around around September nineteen forty-five, he, uh, he, him, and his uh, uh, supporters moved back to uh, to uh, to Vietnam's capital of Hanoi. And on September second, nineteen forty-five, that was that was when the Japanese signed the uh, uh, conditional uh, signed the uh, unconditional surrender to 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 the Allies. Uh, on the same day, Ho Chi Minh declared uh, Vietnam's independence. Okay, he declared their independence, um, and what was the what was the reaction um, at that point? He so the so the story was that it was a big rally in the uh, in was in this place called uh, Baden Square in in Hanoi. So he was standing on like a makeshift platform with like so with with members of his government, and then it would be like around like five hundred thousand half a million people surrounding uh, uh, gathering at the square at a time like. Uh, of basically you have the population of Hanoi, you have like people from adjacent villages, the local areas, like members of like uh, different religious groups and whatnot, uh, Buddhists, Catholics. Uh, so they all gathered uh, around him. That was sort of like it's similar to like Jesus' speech on the mount, in <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in a way. And uh, so he would read out uh, on on uh, on that day. He would read out uh, Vietnam's the, the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence. Mm. Uh, essentially, it's really. Uh, um, and in in the declaration, uh, he quoted uh, first the American Declaration of Independence from 17, 1776, but also the uh, French Declaration of Human Rights from the French Revolution in seventeen eighty nine. Hmm. But mostly to like essentially court uh, for, uh, like uh, uh, to court uh, to, to court diplomacy from uh, America, but also to condemn the French for the failure to uphold to the values of the French Revolution. Yeah, and also, yeah, as you say, to kind of get them on his side. He's yeah. kind of saying, like, listen, here I am, we're declaring independence, but this independence, actually, guys, it's not so different to what you guys did. Yeah. Or what the values that you have. Yeah. Um, but it was obviously, um, I think, maybe what happens post this point, people are a little bit more aware of. I mean, obviously, yeah. um, Ho Chi Minh then established this 
state which was a communist state which then the americans obviously attacked just because yeah. uh, anything with that branding was not accepted at the time yeah um but obviously you know not that uh not to have it like not that communism is good or bad or democracy or, or capitalism is good or bad or whatever but it's different everywhere obviously yeah so maybe the I think obviously the the Cold War, the fear that the Americans had was this kind of um, Soviet Union state. They, but it wasn't really like that in Vietnam. I don't think. Um, So funny. uh, So going back to the uh, him doing the the declaring independence. So so apparently at one point when he was like reading out the uh, declaration, at one point he stopped. And then he asked the uh, the crowd like, uh, uh, "Oh, uh, by the way, uh, compatriots, uh, can you hear me clearly?" And eventually, like the entire, uh, the, the, essentially the entire rally, like shout out well, at one in unison, was like, "Yes, we can hear you clearly." And, you know, it's, yeah. So that's a, a moment of like essentially uh, where he forged that sort of relationship with the populace. Mm. Uh, but also, it shows his his character. So some a very modest man, you know, like he uh, very uh, like I said, at the time, like people who didn't know who he was, like just suddenly this random middle-aged man started like declaring out independence <laughs> he so he went he goes by this name Ho Chi Minh I never heard of this name before but the thing is in people in Vietnam particularly like, the, the educated elite they would have heard of like Ming Ai Kuo so one of Ho Chi Minh's pseudonyms like because that was more famous yeah. one of more famous uh, one of his more famous pseudonyms mm. but whereas like at the time Ho Chi Minh did not come out as like Ming Ai Kuo you know, he said I am, I'm Ming Ai Kuo it's more like I'm just Ho Chi Minh this uh, simple Vietnamese nationalist I'm just simply leading a government of other nationalists to help guide toward Vietnam to help guide Vietnam towards uh, independence. But okay, simple humble person, but his name was the enlightened one. Yeah. Um is that not a bit of a contradiction? Well, unless you, this thing for people didn't uh, didn't mind too much, especially and I think I guess like if you're educated in like the Confucian classic, you have guess well, why is it uh, well, you have like, a, a bit of a doubt. But at the time you can understand maybe oh that's just the name because okay. you know like every Vietnamese name was uh, had the same sort of like uh, same sort of rhythm to it like whereas you you always have something where it, uh, the part of the name will always express some sort of aspiration of hope yeah okay it's like in Ireland we have like Sirsha which means like freedom or liberty yeah. or yeah so sort of like that so yeah. people like didn't didn't mind too much also the fact that because the way Ho Chi Minh uh, like articulated himself and expressed himself. You know, it's just this very humble, simple, uh, humble, modest uh, civil servant who is just here to essentially uh, help lead the, the nation, who is just simply asked to lead the nation. Mm. And that rubbed up on all of his, like, other supporters, even, like, people, people uh, prominent, like, personalities that he courted to, uh, to, to, to join on his cause. Mm. Um, yeah, even later was the story of, like, when he, when he, when he had a meeting with a, with a young doctor, who he wanted to appoint as uh, the mayor of Hanoi, and uh, so he said to to the to the doctor, um, so I want to make you the uh, the mayor of Hanoi. Said, what what do you say to that? And he said, uh, and um, and the, uh, the 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 young doctor was very reluctant, and he was like, no, I don't think I don't have any experience in uh, administration or anything like that. I, I I would rather just use my specialized skill to help the people. Mm. And Ho Chi Minh was like, yeah, but no one asked me to be president either. I, mean, I don't know how to be president either, so we have to learn together. You know, that's a, uh-huh. amazing. That sort of stuff. And that person eventually became the longest serving mayor of Hanoi for like 30 years. Wow. Straight. Yeah. Um, up, to, up to the end of the American, American very well-respected man. So a lot of the people he like courted as well. Like they, they were like young, 
nationalistic, uh, educated Vietnamese. They were not necessarily communists, but at the same time, because at the time, you know, the independence was the key word. He was able to call a lot of these like different people, and they would all like serve. Uh, they all serve Ho Chi Minh as like fellow travelers. Join Ho Chi Minh as fellow travelers mm. on his like vision towards building a new Vietnam. Um, also, going back to like the whole like Cold War thing, um, because even at the time, like Vietnam's independence was not recognized anywhere. Like no one, no one, uh, no one cared about uh, this place called uh, this little place in, in French in uh, French Indochina declaring independence simply because um, of the uh, victorious allied powers they already set out their plan for like uh, all, all different possibilities of the world including Vietnam and the, the plan were, that they lay out was that so they were going to divide Vietnam into two, two halves by the 16th parallel and each part of Vietnam will be occupied by different like, allied forces. And those and they, they the, the job of those allied forces will be to restore order, whatnot, mm. and to ensure some sort of like a smooth transition to power. So to the northern part of Vietnam, which Ho Chi Minh uh, government was based, uh, was uh, temporarily occupied by uh, nationalist Chinese forces. Mm. And then uh, in the south, it was occupied by br- British forces. Wow. And uh, in the southern part of Vietnam, the the British, uh, the the, uh, the commander of the British force uh, decided to rearm not only the Japanese, but also rearm the the French civilians as well. Wow! And that caused uh, chaos. And during that time, Ho Chi Minh and he also the, the famine was still raging on, and you know they were, yeah all have those problems going on at the same time. The government was virtually bank. The new government was virtually bankrupt. Like it was stories of like how like most of the bills in these uh, the bank was basically unusable. Wow, um, and also you have like uh, illiteracy and uh, and whatnot. So you know, he, and Ho Chi Minh had to maneuver all, all around just to just essentially expel the occupying forces to secure independence and negotiate all like different parties all together. And even in his government, you had like rival political parties as well. One of the reasons was so that led to the reason why Ho Chi Minh had to like disband the Communist Party for a while. Oh no, even that they just went into hiding for a bit. Okay. Well, he presented himself as just a pure nationalist, not, not a communist. Just a pure nationalist. Just a pure nationalist. But even though he was still ideologically a communist, mm. it was just happened. Uh, but the way he presented himself publicly was that like he was simply a national, Vietnamese nationalist that was simply that happened to train in Soviet Russia. Mm. Um, and, but yeah, no, like so, it was a very uh, interesting uh, time as well. And he most for more for the most uh, for the most part, uh, he was quite successful. He managed to essentially. Uh, uh, asked the national Chinese troops to leave, but obviously he couldn't do anything about southern Vietnam because, like I said, southern Vietnam was still under strong French control, and so he had to deal with like negotiating with the French in order some sort of solution towards uh, southern Vietnam. So he negotiated with the Chinese for them to leave. Yeah. Uh, so the Chinese left, uh, and then he was uh, in control, or or the Vietnamese were in control of northern Vietnam. Yeah. And then he started negotiations with the British to see if they would feck off from... Uh, pretty much, but also, like, uh, he, uh, at the same time, he kind of... Uh, yeah, so they, they kind of leave, but at the same time, they already rearmed the French and the, the French civilian at the time were... Because, you know, like, because during the Second World War, French were occupied by Nazi Germany. Yeah. So by the time Nazi Germany were defeated, France was basically feeling butthurt from the whole experience. Like, yeah. you know, they... They wanted to restore the, the old empire. They wanted to restore the old French, the old glory. Yeah, and uh, whatnot. So they were still very like, uh, uh, very uh, aggressive uh, about it. So, 
But I sent Ho Chi Minh tried to uh, negotiate some sort of solution with the with the French. And around forty six, he visited France, uh, and the French and the French treated him as sort of a uh, essentially a head of a foreign head of state. Okay. And it was there was this thing called the, the Fontainebleau conference where like all the, the members of his government would negotiate with the French government in order some sort of solution for Vietnam. And one of the pro solution was Vietnam to be a free state within the French what was called the French Union. And there would be some sort of maybe like a referendums in southern Vietnam to decide whether they want to be part of the the the, the Vietnamese state, mm-hmm. uh, the independent, uh, the free Vietnamese state within the French Union. Um, Ho Chi Minh was not a part of the meeting, but he was he would go around basically being the the spokesperson for 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 Viet for Vietnam, being like the uh, going around lobbying to going to different groups, talking to different section of society, meeting with like politicians. Um, intellectual, uh, intellectuals, um, even like talking to like members of other nationalist movements at the time, like from other French colonies, like Algeria, Mada, uh, Madagascar. Even he even stayed in the same hotel as the uh, the, the first prime minister of Israel at uh, one point, mm. uh, because uh, there was there was story that uh, because they stay in the same hotel, uh, they happened to pass by. They would have like little chat, <laughs> chit chat here and there. And at one point, he Ho Chi Minh jokingly said, uh, "Oh, you should establish your Jewish state in uh, in Vietnam." <laughs> and then uh, the the prime uh, the, the guy the the Israel the Jewish guy was like uh, no I think we can well, yeah we 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 can manage yeah we, we'll be fine we, yeah the thing but thanks for the offer that yeah. sort of uh, that was mentioned like an Israeli newspaper at one point no way yeah um, so um, he had a sense of humor as well. Yeah, Ho Chi Minh very was very funny. Like, uh, like so there was so many there's so many so many anecdotes about his like uh, sense of humor. Uh, at times it can be very like self-deprecating. You know, like yeah. uh, uh, there was a story when he was in France in '46 as the head of state of Viet- as Vietnamese head of state. Um, so he would do all like the public function, all the like the uh, the public function as a visiting uh, head of state, uh, to going to like play, going to memorials and whatnot. So at one point he would they would uh, laying a thread at the Champs Elysees mm. uh, on the tombs of the unknown soldier, and uh, I think it was either a journalist or a uh, or a bodyguard that asked him, like, Mr. President, how do you manage to gather such a large crowd? And uh, Ho Chi Minh jokingly said, well, you know, because uh, they want to see the uh, Vietnamese Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so he's completely taking the piss out of himself in that yeah, case. Yeah, even like... Uh, when uh, or like one of the Americans was still stationed in Vietnam in uh, in forty five forty six, he had a meeting with Ho Chi Minh and Ho Chi Minh. Like, he was surrounded by like bodyguards. You know, like, Ho Chi Minh said to him like, uh, you know, uh, you know, when I was like uh, agitating, you know, I was followed by these guys all around, and look at me now, you know, I'm in the same position as I was. <laughs> yeah, well, what strikes me about this guy is that he um, was obviously like incredibly selfless, really. Yeah. Uh, it, he obviously had his vision and he fought his whole life for that vision um, but he did that by giving up his name he changed his name so many times um, he lived very like he never had riches or anything like that yeah. um, His he lived off his ideals and his vision for uh, an independent or whatever about independence or lack of colonialism he just simply wanted equal rights and a better life for yeah. people in Vietnam because I think he he grew up um, in an area and saw his the effect on his father saw the effect that on him of how it wasn't possible for him there to have uh, um, 
a, a life of prosperity. Yeah, that it wasn't possible for a prosperous life there, um, and I think he wanted that for for his country. And essentially, that was his fire that lit him. But I just think of people these days and how we're so obsessed with ourselves and yeah. taking selfies all the time and posting stuff about ourselves and yeah. how great we are. LinkedIn accounts, geez, look at me, I'm so amazing. Yeah, um, and he, okay, as you said, he's like, I didn't ask to be president. Uh, it seemed like he, he's one of these people <clears throat> who wasn't hungry for power. Yeah. It was that he saw that something had to be done and I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I don't know, care what you call me. I have so many different names, um, but this just has to be done. Yeah. Um, and he took up the mantle, I guess. Yeah. Um, I guess also like... Um I guess, you know, even though he was not, like, power-hungry, he did. I think he did enjoy a bit of the, you know, the power. I think he was, there was sort of, like, a van, sort of element of vanity okay. to, to him, in a way, because he didn't enjoy, like, all the, the adulation he was getting from the the population, and, you know, it was sort of, like, give and receive really, yeah. relationship. And he, and at the same, like I said, he was sort of, like, a one-man PR machine. Yeah. As well. So he knew how to project himself towards, like, the... Uh, towards uh, any people, uh, any of the any of the people that he came in contact with, whether it was like just a member, simply a member of a pop of the Vietnamese uh, population, or like visiting dignitary or, or intellectual, or like just a, some uh, some random guy on the street, you know, he knew how to like uh, put a, uh, portray himself publicly. As a but ma- as a master communicator, a master communicator, uh, in a way, like especially he he talked in very simple, like uh, in very simple language as well. It's easy to understand, comprehensive. Uh, he would use like proverbs, like use on his, uh, stuff from his own life experience, but also from history and the classics. That the things are that he that he learned throughout his uh, his journey. Yeah, like even for example, like when he appointed someone uh, to be education minister. Uh, this uh, person who was a very he's a very prominent uh, Vietnamese scholar, like prominent Vietnamese anthropologist, educated in in, in Sorbonne in France, and uh, he said, uh, "Remember, like uh, I'm going to make you. Uh, I wanted to make. Uh, I'm going to make you education minister. And also, I want you to lead, you to lead the illiteracy anti illiteracy campaign. Uh, and uh, because you uh, you're a very well educated man, you you possess a large vocabulary, mm. and I want you to share some of that vocabulary with the people. Amazing." So yeah, so it's a simple, simple things, uh, simple things like that. So practical, very practical, very pragmatic, very flexible. Uh, like even like one of the things he said to uh, this person who was his uh, minister of interior, a very also a very prominent uh, Vietnamese nationalist from my uh, from from the same pro- home province as my family, who who became uh, who also who was also caretaker president when he was away in France. Uh, he said like something in like Sino Vietnamese saying uh, it was a lot, it was basically uh, something from the Book of Change uh, from the Confucian classic the Book of Change essentially uh, anything that is unchangeable anything that, that cannot be changed we should use that in order to uh, implement changes ten times ten thousand times over mm. essentially things like rules and principles amazing so essentially you can still have principles and uh, and uh, principles but at the same time you should be able to adapt to the time. Okay, in multiple in multiple ways, and uh, um, super as uh, incredible. I'd love to to learn more about that type of philosophy. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, it's pretty uh, fascinating, and especially because he also because the fact that he because he had experience living in the, the Far East, but also like in, in the West. So he had uh, he would like borrow elements from like from different cultures. 
and whatnot. Like, you know, he even said to uh, one point, he said, uh, you know, I, I learned from uh, Confucian, from Confucius, uh, the idea of like self-cultivation, self-improvement. But also I learned from Jesus uh, like about love, uh, love for your neighbors. Uh, I learned from uh, Karl Marx about dialectical materialism. And also like Sun Yat-sen, a very prominent Chinese revolutionary, uh, like about um, serving the people, serving the nation. Mm. And I believe that if, if those four, those uh, if those uh, four characters, if those four figures, they, if they were living next to each other, they would be best of friends. Mm. Okay. Mm, yeah. So the four pillars of the table. Four pillar. Yeah. I mean, uh, not a bad idea. No. Yeah. No. Like he. Uh, so he presented as a very like uh, man of sort of like a very wor- very worldly, very humble, but also very wise. So they you know sort of like a very. But that's where the, the uncle idea came along, you know, him as the as Uncle Ho, just your friendly uncle. Yeah, one of uh, you. One of you, yeah. So a member of the fam- member of the Vietnamese family. But even at the, the thing is that the English translation doesn't do it justice, simply because the, the word uncle that he in Vietnamese. See, the thing is in Vietnamese, it, the Vietnamese language is very hierarchical in terms of like pronouns. Okay. So and then so it so you would so you don't we don't have a, we don't really have a word for like you. It depends on. Your your relationship with the adjacent person, with the person next to with the person next to you, and so uh, it, even the thing comes to like even when it comes to things like family familial relationship. Yeah. Where so there's like different words for uncle, depends on that person's relation with with your with your father or your with your with I with either member of your family, with your father or your mother. Okay. So the in Vietnamese would be back hole. So back is like what you what we would use to prefer to our like. Uh, essentially, like uh, our uh, our dad's uh, oldest brother, okay, elder brother, our elder brother back. So, so essentially, he's like above the father, like uh, the the, un- the 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 older uncle would was while the father would take part directly in raising the child, uh, directly take part in raising the child. The uh, the uh, the older uncle would essentially provide counsel to the father. Mm. So he would be like he play he would be like, yeah, play more of a so you essentially have Ho Chi Minh playing more playing the elder uncle kind of almost like a godfather like a godfather yeah um wow okay um cool uh, interesting that you don't have the or you've got like a totally different system for pronouns um, <laughs> I wonder how that goes down these days and the... um I'm not, I don't, yeah like a, it hasn't caught on in Vietnam. <laughs> Yet, like I haven't seen it in in Vietnam so far, simply because yeah, the the pronoun system in uh, within the Vietnamese household household is already complicated mm. enough. You know, it's already like a minefield to track along, and even like uh, out in in your like external relationship, you never know how old the person is, and you have to just have to guess. Yeah, wow. Or you have to just prefer to them as friend. You know. Yeah. Like, um, but yeah, like, even like the whole like uh, so yeah, Ho Chi Minh like so essentially he France he went to France forty six state visit um, the negotiation basically collapsed they signed they, they only signed some sort of like a like a like a, like a memorandum like a sort of like a uh, some form of like an agreement but it never come it never came to fruition and by December nineteen forty six war broke out between uh, his government and the French. And mm-hmm. that led to like a, uh, eight more years of war. So they went back from the they, they went back to the jungle and fought uh, a guerrilla war against uh, the French uh, for eight years. And that was known as the first Indochina War. Yeah. Of, uh, in the first phase of the war, it was just a simple it was a simple local uh, conflict 
like independence, war of independence, simple war of independence, similar, not too uh, similar to like the Irish war of independence. So you you have like a bunch of uh, guy ragtag guys who who barely have shoes, barely yeah. have boots, and they were fighting against like a more experienced modern army. Yeah. But obviously, like by the second phase in the early fifties, that that conflict became internationalized. Mm. So, because uh, that's when you had like the Cold War element coming coming into play. So it was in the early fifties. So communist China became communist under Mao under Chairman Mao, and then uh, Chairman Mao recognized Ho Chi Minh's government, and then America also became became more involved in uh, in Vietnam because they were fighting a war in Korea at the time. Yeah, and they thought, uh, oh, you know, if Korea fall, Korea and Vietnam uh, falls to communism, the the whole world's fucked, and that sort of. <laughs> Uh, that sort of stuff. You have to think called domino theory, uh, yeah. whatnot. So they became more about the help supported the French. They also backed up a, a rival government. Uh, so like a essentially that composed of mostly like anti-communist nationalists. Okay. Um, eventually, uh, eventually, and then eventually the French were defeated at the Battle of Binh Phu uh, in 1954. Uh, around the same time, you had this conference in Geneva that was to do, that was to decide the future of, uh, of Vietnam. Hmm. Um, but the thing is, America did not sign the final agreement, um, where, and uh, the the plan was that they were going to divide Vietnam into two halves again. So you're going to buy, buy the 17 parallel. So Ho Chi Minh's force would take over, take control of the north, and then uh, the French would remain in the south. And then you have the uh, yeah you you also had the uh, the uh, the anti-communist nationalist government uh, controlling the the south, and that will only be temporary for two years. Um, two years, and then there will be like a referendum, sort of a national election to decide who get to run the whole the whole country. All right. Uh, because and the thing is, America was fearing that um, you know, like Ho Chi Minh might might win the whole thing because he's very popular, and you know, he's seen as the as the victor, mm. seen as the victor, you know, as, as the true face of Vietnamese independence and whatnot. Um, but yeah, so he they they backed up uh, the government in uh, in the south. Uh, but with a backup of a government in the south, did not agree to to the election to being 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 held, um, being uh, being held, and then eventually that led to um, well at least uh, by, by nineteen sixty, uh, Ho Chi Minh was involved in another war, this time against uh, the most powerful country uh, country in the world, the Americans, the the the, the Americans uh, and. Um, but yeah, like so, so you know, like he, so Ho Chi Minh never had a chance to become like a peacetime leader. Yeah, in a way, and you know, like obviously when he became leader, when, when he took over the north, him and his government took over the north, and by after 1954, and they tried to implement like socialist policy. Um, some things went right, something went wrong. You know, like with, uh, as always with like sort of socialist policy, uh, economic policies. Yeah, and they were backed up by Soviet Union and uh, and China. At first, they tried to agitate for like peaceful reunification. Yeah, but by nineteen, but by nineteen fifty nine, early uh, nineteen sixty, um, the government in the, in the South was persecuting communists. Uh, in uh, in the, in the south, like said, because some some of his followers, uh, some of Ho Chi Minh's followers, went went up north. Some of them stayed at, in in the south. A lot of them were like essentially persecuted by the American back government. Also, in 1954, you had this exodus from like uh, mostly the Catholics coming from from the north up down south, mostly because uh, they. Uh, for, partly because they were anti, they they didn't like communism too much. Also because they like, uh, they were just fearing for their lives and. In, in general, but not so a lot. Like, we're close to a million people moved from north to south. 
Um, so you have like, but as I said, it was used as a way to to bulk up popular support for the government in the south, oh. because the uh, the leader of the south at the time, Gordon Yim, he was a he was a Catholic, okay. but in a in a in a basically mostly Buddhist country. Um, but yeah, so yeah, so yeah, essentially, yeah, by sixty, there were the, you you had this. Uh, Ho Chi Minh was already was embroiled. Uh, Ho Chi Minh and his government's his supporters were embroiled in another war. And um, what a life! Well, yeah, and then uh, it, it started out sort of like like a civil conflict because they were they were backing up. So you had the the, uh, the pro American forces, the pro American government fighting like a, a a local militia that would probably uh, probably be known as the Viet Cong, even yeah. though they wouldn't call them didn't call themselves Viet Cong. It was more of a derogatory term used by. The government in the south were, were later adapted by American soldiers fighting in Vietnam. Mm. And around 1965, America sent the, the first batch of like American Marines of like of the, of the Marine Corps, uh, because before that they only sent like advisors. Mm. But by 1965, they sent like the first batch of the of the, of the Marine Corps. And by 1968, you have like half a million American infantrymen stationed in in, in Vietnam. And the war, and the war essentially engulfed. Uh, the war caught the world's attention, and you know it divided societies left and right, and yeah. whatnot. Particularly Americans, uh, the Amer- American society uh, became uh, probably well known in uh, became well known in popular culture, particularly uh, in Western movies. Pop- movies. Yeah. And, and Ho Chi Minh also became sort of like a symbol uh, for essentially the uh, the counterculture as well, like um, like. Left uh, like student protests against anti-war. Student protests would shout his name. They would also carry his picture. They would shout like Ho 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 Chi Minh. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, like national liberation movement were looking to Viet across the world in Palestine, in Africa, were looking to Vietnam as 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 a role model. Yeah. But what what's obviously different here about a lot of other places is they won the war. Yeah. In the end, uh, like. Probably the only ever country to defeat a a superpower at the time. Yeah, you know, like well, I I mean I mean like obviously like let's say Ireland got you know, that wasn't a a battle that wasn't a war. It wasn't an out and out war like yeah. um, in in the ring taking swings at each other. Like obviously I, I, whatever we hear was was guerrilla warfare etc. But this yeah. was. This was a proper, as you said, years-long war yeah. where the the full concentration of that superpower was in Vietnam at the time. Yeah. Um, whereas, obviously, you know, uh, like the likes of Ireland, we capitalized on the fact of World War One happening at the time, and yeah. that obviously had a massive impact on our independence. Yeah. Um, but this was. A, a full-on fight between the two um, countries, and Vietnam ended up winning that. Which yeah, um, well yeah, like Vietnam, well, particularly uh, communist uh, Vietnamese won the war in general. Um, but you know, like in terms, of, I think yeah, it was the first time, and then obviously there was we we got surpassed by Afghanistan when they fought yeah. when they fought the Soviets uh, in the eighties. But true. at the same time, like because you know, like Ho Chi Minh uh, and his uh, followers fought against the French and then the Americans, and that culminated into a thirty uh, a thirty year long struggle for uh, national independence and uh, yeah and your reunification. Okay. So like a thirty year, so one of those centuries, one of the 20th century longest war, 
uh, essentially, and more bombs were dropped in Vietnam than the, the total uh, than the, the, the total that was dropped in throughout the entire Second World War. Mm. Uh, it's mad. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to go because like that is a whole other topic in and of itself. Um, focusing because this obviously and you know passed like as we say Ho Chi Minh passed away in 1969 so yeah. um, what do you now like having knowing so much about him and not only we didn't really touch on too many of the let's say the negative aspects of him and other things in his life but what do you take from his life um, any, any kind of any standouts that come to your mind well uh, what because uh, you know I'm a, I'm a I'm a student of history you know I studied history at a university level you know, but as uh, and at least I study abroad so yeah. what always struck me was his uh, lifetime spending abroad you know going working like uh, just uh, working to survive but at the same time not letting go of his uh, own goals and objectives hmm. Uh, and especially like during the lockdowns as well, like you know, he 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 became so like an inspiration, you know. Like imagine, because you know, like, for example, like living in Ireland, people, you know, you we see we talk to all the expats, and they often complain about the weather. Mm. And then you know, then again, you have a man who went through like all sort of condition in his lifetime. You know, he experienced the Russian winter, winter. He all the, the weather in France, the Russian winter, malaria-infested jungles in uh, mm. in Vietnam. Um, it gets quite chilly and like up in the mountains as well. Like mm. and, um, also like the fact that there's like enemy air raids that can happen at any time. You know? mm. um, it, like he was in prisons multiple times. Like for example, he uh, spent a few years in prison in China. During that time, he came out with a with a poetry collection. <laughs> uh, though it's, it's recognized for like a, a national treasure. Uh, Amazing. His, his uh, notebook, uh, what he called his notebook from a from a from a prison. It's a collection of like poems uh, written in uh, in Chinese. Yeah, it's just about it's essentially as a way to pass the time. Amazing. So you're inspired by this fact that this guy he made the most out of. Yeah, it's more of his situation. I think it's you know if uh, like. Uh, doesn't shouldn't matter if you disagree with his politics, but I think you know in a way you can learn a few things from him, like as a character, yeah, uh, as a human being, also the fact the way he interact interacted with people, like like I say, he was a very masterful uh, communicator, you know, like I said, and 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 I think anyone who who who, who had a chance to 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 come in contact with him, regardless of who they are, they always always they always like leave, they always uh, left with like very positive impressions, they would like. Uh, with positive impression of him, yeah. the way because the way he talks, it, it was never like even though like he he he's a he's a he's the leader of a country, he's the commander in chief of a very fanatic, battle hardened army. He always presented himself as a man of peace. Yeah, you know, talking he always talks. Uh, you know the fact most people whoever kind of came in contact with Artax always always said you know always asked me about my family, my own situation. And you're trying essentially to gain. He he had a he had an eye for sympathy. Essentially, essentially, um, you know, and you know the way he, you know, he's very he was also very touchy feely as well. Like he always he likes mm. he likes a good hug and kisses on the cheeks. You know, you know it's just some things that he picked up uh, during his time in France. In France, you know, yeah, he, 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 he living in Europe, you know, yeah, hanging also hanging around with Russian with like drunk Russians and yeah. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I know a very, a very fun guy to be around with someone, essentially someone you can have a beer with. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, even if, and he lived very modest, he was a very modest man as well. Like, he lived with very little means. Mm. So, like, in, uh, so if we go to Vietnam, so, um, so his body is, after his death, his body was, he, his body was placed in a, a mausoleum where his body remained remain in state. So you okay. can visit his body and wow. pay respect. So, but obviously the mausoleum is, doesn't really reflect. Uh, there's been some controversy around the mausoleum where they said that the mausoleum doesn't really reflect uh, him uh, and his character personality, because it makes just seem as just another communist leader who had a cult pers- had a corporate personality around him. Yeah, and it was and you know similar to like uh, Mao in China or like Kim Il Sung in North Korea. Yeah, whereas like he was very different to the, to those guys. Yeah, as a human, as a, as a person, uh, but yeah, at the same time, uh, near the uh, what is now the presidential palace, there will be a, so there's this little tilted house, uh, where the, that was where Ho Chi Minh used to live when he was the leader of North Vietnam, um, because he never stayed in the presidential palace. He only used it to like receive guests, but most wow. of the time he would just uh, he would be he would just be staying in, in the tilted house, very simple, one bed. So like one a one bed studio in a way, and then wow. like a wardrobe, a desk, some books, um, two sets of clothes, sandals, a walking stick, and that's a, that was that's that all he got. Uh, maybe like a paper fan just to on a hot day, you know. Just, yeah. Um, and that's that, that's all he he had. Uh, Incredible. Yeah, yeah. So and you know like he. Uh, yeah, so like that's what I mean. Like he's just he he. So you know he was very very very. He had a very simple living, and then even like that was he. That was something that he always advocated when he was as leader, because one of his uh, famous quote was that uh, it was from a newspaper interview, where he said, you know, I. Uh, uh, but my utmost desire, which essentially where he wanted to, he where he portrayed himself as being, being selfless and, and modest at the same time, where he said uh, where he said. Uh, you know, my utmost desire is that for the country, for our country to be uh, fully independent, free and in- independent, our people to be uh, well-fed, well-educated, and well-clothed. As for myself, I'll probably retreat back to a simple country house, uh, where a little house in the countryside with where, 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 where a lake so I can go fishing, I can make friends with the, with some old lumberjacks, uh, play with the, the little peasant kids uh, riding on the water buffalo, the, that sort of stuff, you know. It's basically saying I'll probably go back on or live on a farm somewhere. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, back to his roots. Back to yeah, back to his roots. Um, but yeah, no, like uh, he, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, so, so you can't really. So in general, like you know, those things we should learn from you know from him. You know, uh, having uh, uh, living, traveling, understanding different, having uh, having the understand, having the ability to understand different cultures, different ways of lives, but also at the same time. Uh, Live within your means. Yeah. But at the same time, also like striving for great, great for for great things as well. Yeah, I love it. I think that's a nice way to end it. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna put a link to the documentary that you sent me. Um, in the in the description of the episode. Um, there's books out there that people can get as well. Um, there's a biography written by a French guy that you sent to me called uh, Pierre Prochot. He passed away like I think a couple of months ago. Um, yeah, then there was another. There's another book written. There's a there's basically a bunch of books written on him from like mostly from Western historians. In addition, in, in addition to that, there's books written on him by Vietnamese historians, obviously because it's like a, 
uh, you know, they, 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 uh, they still try to maintain his uh, his cult, uh, yeah, his image uh, as as a sort of legitimacy. This documentary uh, produced on him uh, in the West, but also in in Vietnam. Movie, there's been films made made out of different aspects of his life. Novels written about him. I'm not surprised. There's even there are even there are songs written about him uh, in well more, mostly in Vietnam, but also in other languages as well. Hmm. So there's uh, as early as 1950s, there's this like uh, left leaning uh, Scottish Irish uh, folk singer Edwin McCall wrote a song about Ho Chi Minh. Okay. Um, that was when during the French. Uh, he wrote the guy also wrote songs about Stalin and whatnot. But right. Yeah, but, <laughs> okay. But uh, the song he wrote about Ho Chi Minh when he learned about the the French war about Ho Chi Minh struggle against the French in the fifties. Yeah. Uh, but also there's a and Ho Chi Minh is a very is a very popular figure in Latin America as well. Uh, yeah. Well, more because like Cuba is uh, yeah. is one of the only is the only communist state in in Latin America. But also. He his image also struck a chord in in most in in a lot of in different like section left wing section in Latin American society, particularly in the sixties. Mm. So there's a song written about him uh, by a very famous uh, Chilean poet and songwriter Victor Hara. Okay. And the song is in Spanish. It's called uh, El Derecho Baby in Paz. Okay. The right to live in uh, in peace and. The song made mention about uh, the Vimy struggles against the Americans, but also about the image of Uncle Ho. Mm. As a poet, you know, a simple poet who, who, uh, who's a, who's the uh, spokesperson, who's the uh, who's the leader of his of his people. Mm. Yeah, but they, so they love the image of Hong Kong. They love the image of Ho Chi Minh as a poet. Mm. Essentially, a simple uh, poet with a with a wispy beard, who simply uh, uh, fight for social justice and yes. what. And also, like I forgot to mention, like there's a bit of Michael D. Higgins. You can see a bit of. Uh, uh, Ho Chi Minh, Michael D. Higgins. Okay, just the way in the in the way and the way they interact and yeah, like humility, humility, but so the uh, a career that was, that was dedicated towards uh, uh, social justice. Yeah, uh, the embeddement of a poet, a poet uh, right. as well. The only difference that uh, Michael D. Higgins is a happily married man, and Michael Ho Chi Minh never had that privilege. Yeah. Yes, uh, was known was probably known not to, not to have that privilege. Um, like even like there was there were times people asked him like uh, uh, other leaders would ask him like do you have a family of your own? He would say oh you know all the people in Vietnam all my children. Mm. Um, but yeah, there are songs written about him. Um, yeah, even like songs from like Venezuela from a Venezuelan lesser known song from a Venezuelan songwriter. Um, even like an Algerian writer wrote a play about him. Wow. Um, yeah, so because of the image, because, because simply because they were struck by his by the image of the of the of the of the old Vietnamese man in a in in rubber sandals. Yeah. Uh, but you know, but a very uh, but a prominent leader of the, of the national of uh, of, uh, of national liber of national liberation. Um, yeah, songs written about him. There's uh, the streets named after him in like in places in Africa, and in 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 India. Uh, particularly in Calcutta, and uh, Calcutta statues place uh, him, uh, play, uh, statues of him uh, in different parts of the world. Anywhere where there's a Vietnamese diplomatic presence, they would like lobby for like a Vietnamese statue of Ho Chi Minh wow. to be placed uh, somewhere in, a, in, in, uh, in, in the country. Uh, particularly in places where Ho Chi Minh uh, was known to have uh, to work or live. Yeah. Have spent some of his life. So have spent of his, uh, some of his life. Yeah, like and um, yes, and even there's, there are schools named after him in like 
Mongolia and whatnot because uh, Mongolia used to be a communist state. Yeah. At one point as well. Yeah, like he's a. Uh, uh, yeah, and the thing about Ho Chi Minh, like he's not as maybe he's not as prominent as like other social um, leaders of uh, national liberation or even like other communist leaders. Obviously, when you think of communist leaders, you think of Stalin, Stalin yeah. or, or Mao. You know, you know the the big uh, the big two, and yeah. probably the most notorious. I would imagine so. Yes. Yeah, then Ho Chi Minh would be like a, a reference point in somewhere in those. Uh, but you know he's he like a he I think the way I see Ho Chi Minh is that he's like a a low traveling frequency, a, a low sounding frequency, but one that travels a long distance, mm. and he can pops up at any uh, anywhere. You know I mean I even uh, remember because I at one point I was reading a book about uh, Tu Song Lubek Tu, who's like a very prominent uh, Haitian revolution you know, who helped to liberate uh, Haiti. From uh, from the, from the French and other European powers. Okay. And in, in particular section of the book, uh, there's a mention of like how uh, Ho Chi Minh was called by a uh, Afri- by a left wing African American journalist uh, was referred to a, a left wing uh, African American journalist by the name of Rob- Paul Robertson as the Tucson of Vietnam, simply because of the exploits in the war against the French. Wow. Um, even like yeah, even like. Uh, back in 2020, when you when you when you had the uh, BOM movement, uh, when you had the BOM thing explode exploding everywhere mm. uh, around the world as a result of George, what happened to George Floyd? I remember even uh, on Facebook, uh, a, a Vietnamese a Vietnamese American writer uh, uh, by the name of Nguyen Thanh Nguyen, he uh, he won the so he he won the Pulitzer Prize from from, uh, from who wrote the best-selling novel uh, The Sympathizer. Okay. Which was about the Vietnamese perspective on, on the war and the aftermath, mm. and uh, the thing is, he came from so he's mostly based in America, but also he came from a family of like staunchly anti-communist. Okay, uh, his family fought for the South. Yeah, uh, during the uh, American War, but what struck me was was the most that uh, when uh, on his uh, one of his Facebook posts was about was him essentially talking about how Ho Chi Minh was one of the few. Uh, Vietnamese, uh, one of the few uh, Vietnamese who actually spoke about uh, race relation, uh, race relation in, uh, in in America at great length, mm. and that uh, distinguishing from like all the, uh, from uh, his uh, from uh, from his other contemporaries, big time, especially for that time. Yeah, like he wrote a bunch of essays in nineteen twenties and uh, and whatnot. Even like com- like as I mentioned, he commented on the issue at different points in his life. Yeah, yeah. Just a, a good moral principle guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like so, you know, like that's what I mean. Like, uh, like I said, yeah, it's, uh, even if you don't, dis- you even if you disagree, or you or your own family had bad experience, obviously had bad historical experience with his uh, with his politics, his ideology. As a character, as a man, he is is someone to be admired. Yeah, someone to be uh, admired, and yeah, someone to emulate in a way. Like, yeah. Yeah, um, obviously, like Ho Chi Minh always talk about like uh, the idea of emulation, uh, setting setting an example, hmm. especially, and that's why I mean, like I mean, like yeah, you know, what I mean, you know, people always say never meet your heroes, you know, what I mean, but uh, at the same time, Ho Chi Minh is one of those few cases where that uh, his uh, yeah, the his public image really live up, his personality really live up to his public image hmm. um, as well. Um, like people who work with him, who, who live closely to uh, to him, will always say the same thing. Yeah, 
uh, same thing uh, about him and because the way he and because he there's always sort of like he always he always strive to create sort of like a familiar uh, atmosphere with those around him yeah like those who work closely with him uh, at any different uh, in any role at any level of governments any level of society whatnot like uh like for example like um so one of his like interpreter uh, who one of the person one of the person who used to work with him work for Ho uh, as his interpreter in in Russian. Okay. He who later became like a, a prominent politician in Vietnam. He passed away recently. He he would talk about how uh, the way that uh, Ho Chi Minh uh, act uh, walked uh, uh, acted around him and uh, around other people. So there was a story when he when Ho Chi Minh uh, led a. A group of uh, led a dictator, uh, Vietnamese dictator, uh, Vietnamese delegation to uh, to the Soviet Union, um, in the, in the early sixties, and that that guy served uh, Ho as his uh, interpreter in Russian. But the thing is that Ho Ho Chi Minh spoke fluent Russian, but uh, but at the same time, but at the same time, they would have an interpreter to to help out with the other like members of the delegation who don't speak, who didn't speak fluent Russian. Mm. But uh, same, he noticed that. Uh, uh, Ho Chi Minh would, would would read something uh, at the back of a cigarette bo- at a back of a cigarette box, and uh, and and uh, he and the interpreter asked Ho Chi Minh like why 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 are you reading? Uh, oh, there's, and he said, oh, they're just Russian words, <laughs> like Russian for uh, like yeah yeah because you know when you get old you for, you forget things and you have hmm. yeah so you, you you might need a reminder every now and then that sort of stuff, and you know that's, that's the way that Ho Chi Minh learned it. Foreign, foreign language as well, like just from learning, just like writing a letter, writing down a list of like uh, different words, like new vocabulary. Yeah, is 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 passion also because that's incredibly difficult. Obviously, you spoke English. Uh, you know, we've said this already, but four or five languages to yeah. a good level. Uh, that's yeah. all difficult languages as well. Very yeah. different from the ones he grew up with. Um, yeah. Just an incredible man. Yeah, he would never like. Uh, he was he, he he didn't want to rely on interpreters. He would just try to find. They happened to speak English. He was speaking English to them. They happened to speak any language that he spoke. He was he would use those uh, languages at any opp- opportunity. But also in terms of the way, like uh, he also like instruct people in terms of how they should behave and conduct uh, conduct themselves. Yeah. So the same story with the it was the same thing with the, the interpreter guy. So once one there was a, a big banquet, a big buffet. That was being held during the uh, during the during the visit, uh, in the, so it was, uh, and you know obviously being a young uh, civil servant, you know who never been outside of Vietnam before, you know he was struck by you know the the tremendous amount of like food uh, available in front of him. Mm. So it was like the, so the guy started like picking out different like the different dishes and putting on his plates and uh, and whatnot. And Ho Chi Minh like, essentially. Uh, just uh, suddenly reminded, uh, just, uh, I gave him a little nug saying, "Hey, just slow down, you know. It's just slow down. Make sure you pick one thing and then just finish it, you know." Wow. <laughs> and then one of his uh, subordinates, who was like a uh, subordinate, turned to him and said, "You know, he's the guy's. He's he's still young, you know. Uh, but just let him eat, you know." I don't. Uh, and then he said, Hojin was like, he was taking it back a bit. So he was like. Uh, Oh yeah, but I, I, I don't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't stop him from eating. It just, just make sure you know. Just be careful, like to, uh, just, uh, just, uh, just be, just be, just be, uh, just, be uh, just be a bit more mindful, you know. Like. Yeah, and uh, and those things I st- struck with those with the people that I work around would work with him. Yeah. Just those simple little moments. Yes, his 
his structure his, his, his principles of life yeah his principles yeah life and uh, behave himself like his instruction because one of his uh, more famous works was uh, a pamphlet so that was called how to uh, uh, modify your ways of working mm. essentially it's, it's more of a set of instructions for like uh, political cadres and civil servants how they should behave themselves mm. saying that oh you know you should be fr- uh, and that would be uh, condensed into like four words one that was like uh, 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 was, uh, was how to be uh, be, uh, be laborious uh, laborious uh, be laborious be transparent uh, frugal also be righteous you know, those those kind of yeah, geez, in governments now, I can't think of anything that different, more different to what we have. Look, look, I mean, we have the same complaints about uh, the government, and even though it's the same party, but somehow the people in charge, they're, they're, they're slightly different. They kind of differ away from that generation. But that's the I mean, that generation uh, that went through the wars. So they, they're kind of like Vietnam's version of the, the greatest generation. Yeah. And because they had this idol that lived up, uh, that, 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 that was alive at the time, that they lived up to, they were willing, then they... That they did dedicated their lives to, you know, they worship. Not only they worship us, but they, they were willing to emulate. Yeah. But obviously, at the same time, you know, Ho Chi Minh had, always had a high bar. But like I said, you know, in terms of his like personal flaws, you know, uh, Ho Chi Minh was known to be a bit of a heavy smoker. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But that was like one of his habits that he picked along the way during his like long journey abroad. I'm sure he learned that in France. Well, France, even like uh, because it was like cold winter, you don't have enough heating. You have to find a way to like yeah keep yourself warm. So lighting a cigarette was one of the ways. That's true. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, like um, um, uh, but yeah, no, like he, but like I said, he uh, like the way he conduct uh, among uh, the way he conduct himself with everybody, the way he the way he lived and whatnot. It it always struck it has a, it always struck a chord. Uh, even even like this thing, like even people who. But eventually, he came to disagree with him politically. They were always respecting him for for his like personality and uh, lifestyle. Yeah, um, Nia, thank you so much for for describing his life to us. It's a fascinating story. I feel like I want to read more about him, uh, learn more about him, and yeah, I just again have this image of this guy walking from China into into. Uh, northern vietnam was nothing but his ideals and and how that turned into the life that that he had and everything that came before that as well um fascinating truly thank you so much yeah thank you hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 